If you've looked anywhere in the world this week, in the news of the world, opened up social media, your feeds, um, if you've just spent some time in general public, then you are aware of the full-scale war going on in Israel in Pal- among the Palestinian people, the Israeli people, the militant terrorist organization Hamas, who holds the power, uh, the military, terroristic military power in the Gaza Strip. They actually are in control of that small piece of land. They carried out a surprise attack earlier, last, actually last weekend, on October 7th, early in the morning. Hamas launched several thousand rockets into the southern and central areas of Israel, the, the region of Israel. And since then, there have been even hundreds of others being uh, launched over there. Many of you maybe saw or, or read or heard of the, the news of paratroopers breaking into, getting into across the Iron Dome, the, 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 the huge border that Israel has over separating them from the Gaza Strip. They infiltrated the southern Israeli towns and villages, and in that attack, they flew paragliders from Gaza into Israeli territory and killed more than a thousand people and kidnapped at least a hundred hostages. And, and keeping in step with the nature of our world today, they videoed their terrorism and posted everything, posted a lot of things on social media so that the world could see their evil and their depravity on display as they paraded around dead bodies and desecrated many of them. And we watch that, we see that, and those are things that we ought not see. I mean, those are, really, those are things that human eyes really shouldn't, shouldn't have to look at. So we see these images and we read about it and we hear about it and we watch the videos and the emotions that we feel are shock and horror and anger and sadness and all sorts of a range of emotions that you have probably felt over the past week. And we feel all these things as we witness the sights and, and read the stories from Israel that are flooding our screens and our televisions and our phones. And undoubtedly, there is an internal conflict in many of you most likely, wondering as a Christian, how should I feel? As a Christian, which group is right? Which group is wrong? Does the Bible give us any answers? And I'm here to tell you that indeed the Bible does give us answers. And the first answer that the scripture gives us is from Psalm chapter 122. So Psalm 122 verses 7 through 9. And this is what that says. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. And so the Bible tells us to pray. The Bible tells us to pray. And, and, and specifically to pray for peace. And so let's do that right now. Okay, let's just, there's no better way to begin a conversation about, about this than to pray. And so let's just, let's pray. Get comfortable, all right? God of comfort, we pray that you would send your spirit to us, to the world, that you would encompass all of those whose lives are torn apart by the violence and the death that we have seen in Israel and in Palestine. 
The word says that you are the advocate of the oppressed and you are the one whose eye is on the sparrow, God. And so we pray that arms would reach out in healing rather than in aggression. That hearts would mourn rather than militarize and seek to destroy. We pray for the God of justice to give strength to those who have been working for a just peace and it might just seem fruitless right now. Pray that you would strengthen their resolve, that you would not let them feel alone, that you would show us, Father, how to support the work of those who seek peace and justice, and that you would help us to build up their courage as we pray for them. We pray that you would guide religious leaders to model unity and reconciliation along all the lines of division that we see. We pray that you would guide political leaders to listen with their their hearts that you have put into their their bodies and that you would cause them to seek peace and pursue it. God of love, we lift up Israel and Palestine this morning. We lift up its people, its land, its creatures who are made in your image. War is an absolute monster that consumes everything in its path. And peace is a gift that only comes from you. It's at the very heart of why the Messiah, Jesus Christ, came to lay down his life for us to bring peace. And so we beg for love and compassion to prevail on all of your lands that you have created in this, in this world. And you're the God of hope. And so we lift up the cities of the region of the other side of the world from where we're standing right now, the Gaza City, Tel Aviv, Ramallah, Ashkelon, all those cities that we have seen on the news that for so long have been divided. We pray that you would come and breathe peace to your people in that region, that they may all recognize you as the God of hope. You're the God of mercy. And so even now, Lord, work on the hearts of all of the combatants to choose life over death to choose reconciliation over retaliation, to choose restoration over destruction. And Father, closer to home, help us to resist any form of anti-Semitism, especially in our churches. There are innocent people from the lands of Israel and Palestine, and they deserve the opportunity to live in peace and unafraid, and they deserve the right to be able to determine their own future as you've created us with that opportunity. And you're the God of the nations. We pray that as the God of the nations, you would not let one more child be sacrificed on the altar of political expediency. That's there and here. Keep safe everyone from the unjust leaders who will exploit the lowly people's vulnerability for their own distorted ends. Give wise discernment to those who make decisions that they might pursue peace. Provide them insight into how to foster well-being and freedom and thriving for all. 
Something that seems impossible, but Lord, you're, you're the God of all of these things, and so we pray for all of these things today. Teach us all how to resolve our all injustices with righteousness, not with weapons. We pray that you would guard our hearts from retaliation and that you would give us hearts of love alone as you have. And Lord, you're the God of salvation, and so we pray that you would strengthen our faith in you. Even when we don't have clear answers, that we would still offer up ourselves for the cause of peace and for the glory of your gospel. And so we pray all of this today in the name of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. Well, there isn't anything more that we can do to comfort one another than to pray. And so that's why we need to model that this morning. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I want to tell you, my aim today <clears throat> is not to swallow, not to allow water to go down to my windpipe. <clears throat> it's a good aim. That was bad aim. Haha. <laughs> but my aim today is to not is not to tell you what to think. All right. Uh, that's not that's not why I'm here. Christian eschatological beliefs, um, that word makes me sound really smart, uh, it's, I'm not smart, eschatology is just simply the study of end times and how end times are related to history and present times, and looking, you know, we see, there are plenty of people out there that will tell you about eschatology and try to give you their view of it. It has been debated, there's lots of beliefs about and positions regarding the promises of God to Israel in the past and in the present, as well as in the future. And those things have been argued and debated by Christian leaders, theologians for decades, even centuries. And not just Christian leaders, other religions like Judaism, of course. Well, that's the whole argument between Christianity and Judaism. So my aim is not to tell you what to think about that or which one of those positions you should hold. But my aim is rather to help us how to think about these things that we're seeing in our world how we can think rightly as Christians who trust in the Word of God and are governed by faith in Jesus Christ. We are not governed by political parties. We are not governed by emotions. We are not governed by fear. We are not governed by news organizations. We are not governed by social media. We are governed by Jesus Christ. And so how would Jesus Christ think about this? Let's, let's back up and get an overarching view of this conflict, an overarching, I guess, position of it, and, and see what's going on. And then I'll try to put some Bible underneath it and explain it. When I say conflict, I'm talking specifically about the conflict between the Jewish people. So the, that is the, the state of Israel, as well as Jews as a body of people, okay? It's, it, and, it's, and, and, and then also Palestinians, and among the Palestinians is the militant terror group Hamas. And where this can get really foggy is that not all Palestinian people are part of Hamas nor support Hamas. Hamas is a demonic name, actually. In fact, I think the, the, if you go back to the Hebrew word of Hamas, don't quote me on this. I shouldn't even say it since, I shouldn't be, since I'm not positive, but it has a demonic root in the Hebrew language. 
And so it is, it is not just, we, listen, we talk about this all the time here. What is happening every single day as you live, as you, as you look at the world, as you, go, as you go from place to place, there is so much more happening than just what you can see and what you can hear and what you can touch and smell and taste. There is so much more happening. As we've said, there are beings that also want us to be destroyed. Those are in, they are opposed and enemies of God. This organization comes from that. We have to recognize, number one, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you two big points here, okay? And show you some scripture with these points. We have to recognize, number one, that there are Jewish Christians today. I, I, do any of you know any people who are, from, who are Jewish by, by their family um, and, and, and they have embraced Jesus Christ? Keith Wasserman, good friend of ours who runs Good Works in Athens, um, is a Jew for Jesus, Jewish Christian. There are Palestinian Christians as well. Did you know that? Yes. And these Christians are among the meek who will inherit the earth, as Jesus said, including the land of Israel someday. Jesus died to make peace between the Jews and all the nations. That is the entire point. Now remember, this is so awesome that we just recently went through the book of Ephesians, did we not? And in the book of Ephesians, right there at the, toward the beginning in chapter 2, right after that awesome passage about how we were once sinners, dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, who is rich in mercy, sent his son Christ to pick us up out of our dead state and make us alive, breathe life into us. And that's an awesome thing because we say we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus, and it's not by works, and there's nothing that we can do to earn it. And so that's, you get to, that's, that's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 in summary. And then you get to verse 11 through 22, and there's this really weird, complicated, confusing section that talks about the Gentiles and the uncircumcision and the circumcision being the Jews and, and how God separated them from one. And one they're, they're strange. They, they, were, they were people of the promise, but at the promise and the covenant, but now they, they, they've chosen to remove themselves from that promise. And, so, and we had to talk about that a little bit, right? That's the point. The point of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, is that Jesus died to bring peace between the hostility that existed with it from the Jews and the rest of the world. I want to read that for you again. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Some of these scriptures I know I put in the uh, computer and some of them I did not. So you'll just have to take a look. Is this one of them that's in there? Ephesians chapter 2? Okay. I'm going to begin with verse 11. Paul says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles, so he's speaking to the Gentiles, okay, to, to not Jewish people, in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So strangers to the covenant promises. Now he says in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, 
You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And here is what Jesus did. For he himself is our peace who has made us Jews and Gentiles both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself what? One new man, a new people, a new people, right? In place of the two, so making peace between the two and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Let's make sure I keep going here. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for, the, for God by the Spirit. So Jesus died to make peace, to end the hostility between the Jews and everyone else in the world. And to create for himself a new people. And that new people includes all. Anyone who puts their faith in the saving work of Jesus. It is a gift of grace extended to the whole world. Therefore, our prayers and our efforts should be especially devoted to speaking the gospel of Messiah Jesus Christ as the only hope for long-term peace and justice among Jews and Palestinians. The only way that there will ever be hope among those two and peace among those two groups and any groups versus the Jews is if Jesus Christ is embraced by all. That's the most important thing that I think we can say about that. Number two. The Bible does not teach us that we should be partial to Israel or to the Palestinians in the present nature that they live in. And what I mean by that is the, the Christ-rejecting rebellion that both of them are participating in against God. As if any of them, it really, none of them have a divine, a divine, divine right to the land that they are fighting over. And, and in spite of, so if, if you look at why I would say that, it's because they're all living in rebellion to God's covenant promise of Christ. That's why no one has a divine right to the land. And so you can't claim that. Their unbelief and, and their, against their very maker the covenant God who gave them the covenant promise, that covenant promise was intended to point to Jesus. And so what happens is this carries implications for both groups of people. Palestinians and Israel then should be treated with compassion, with public justice in the same way that any dispute is generally settled between nations and people. 
in a civil way, in a wise mingling of justice and mercy. And, and, I'll, and I'll tell you that, so personally, that, that is my overarching position here when I think about these groups of people. That neither Jews or Palestinians can justify anything that they do or be treated in any particular way by claiming a present day divine right to the land while they are living in rebellion against the one who made the land a gift of covenant keeping anyway. I mean, that, God is the one who gave them that, and he gave them that as, on, on the contingency of his covenant promise. And so as long as they're living in rebellion, they don't have a right to it. Nobody does. Now, I said personally, right, because I recognize that some people may tend to lean a little further in one direction or the other in regards to how anyone might think and feel toward Israel and Palestine, and they'll even use the Bible to support their position. That being said, let me provide some more biblical foundation for what I just said, all right? So Israel was chosen by God from all the peoples of the world to be the focus of his blessing in history. And when I say what I'm talking about history, remember God's sole purpose is redemption of people. So the history of redemption, this history then, culminated in the coming and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the Messiah. The book of Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, says this. It's a little harder to get to things quickly with a Bible you're not as familiar with. There we go. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Right? So, amen. Amen. The Lord God has chosen. So, Israel is God's chosen people. No question. And not only that, but God did also promise to Israel the presently disputed land from the time of Abraham on. God said in Deuteronomy 34, uh, this is the land that I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to your offspring. Right? So, so God did promise that land to them. And so you see statements to that effect made throughout the Bible many times. God's God reminding them about this land that he promised them. But neither of those two facts, Israel's election by God, basically God choosing Israel to be his people or God's promises, God's covenant promises of the land, neither of those facts means that Israel has a present day divine right to the land. Now, why do I say that? Here's why I say that. Because of covenant. God establishes all of his relationships with people and his promises. They're based on covenant. And the covenant relationship that God established, entered into with the Jews, meant that he would send the Messiah through the Jews. And so the purpose of that covenant is Jesus. At the Last Supper, Jesus took a cup of wine and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And just moments before that, 
Jesus had broken bread and he had given it to his disciples. And with the word, with, with that, with handing out the bread, he said these words, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so that symbolic action, Jesus then instituted the ordinance of communion that we celebrate and continue to observe every Sunday in remembrance of this very issue that I'm talking about. The new covenant that Jesus spoke of is in contrast to the old covenant, the conditional agreement that God had made with the Israelites through Moses back in those days. And so the old covenant established laws and ceremonies and it separated God's people, the Jews from other nations, making them holy. That's what it means to be separate, to be other. And it helped to define what sin was and it, would sh- and it showcased God's provision of forgiveness through sacrifice. And so then the new covenant was intended to do something that the old covenant could never do finally and once and for all. In fact, the new covenant was predicted in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 33, it says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. This is Jeremiah prophesying. And I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And so this old covenant required blood. It required blood sacrifices of animals, but it could not provide a final sacrifice for sin. The old covenant required repeated daily sacrifices of animals as a reminder for people's sins. It was a horrible thing. It was a horrible reminder. But as scripture says in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 10, or sorry, in Hebrews chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews says that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's impossible for that to happen once and for all. And so Jesus came to establish what Hebrews says, Hebrews chapter 7, I believe, says a better covenant. It's actually the theme of Hebrews. It's just talking about how much better Jesus is and the covenant of Christ than the old covenant. And that covenant, that new covenant, was that Jesus said, said, he said that it was in his blood. So Jesus shed his blood on the cross to take away the sins of the world. The Gospel of John says, the book of the New Testament says, and to enact this new covenant between God and humanity. And this new covenant is based on faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ to take away sin rather than on the repeated sacrifices or any other kind of work that you might have to do that the Old Testament law set out. And the reason for this is because Jesus is, as John the baptizer said, the holy lamb of God. And his one-time sacrifice is sufficient to atone for the sins of all who believe in him. Some Jews believe that Jesus is the Messiah who enacted the new covenant of grace 
abolishing the hostility between the Jews and the rest of the world, establishing a new people, the church, the family of God. The first Christians were Jews, right? Many Jews today, I said, are believers in Jesus, covenant-keeping Christians. But still many are not. This is one of the big reasons why we have conflict today. And so it brings us back to the issue of the land. If you're not believing in Jesus as a Jewish person, you are a non-covenant-keeping person. You are not under the covenant of God. And so you do not have a divine right to hold the land of promise that was given by covenant in the first place. Covenant-breaking forfeits covenant privileges. God said in, to Israel in Exodus, Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, he said, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all my peoples. And so today, Israel as, it's hard to speak in generalities, but I think, I mean, but I, so Israel as a nation and in large part as a people, are covenant-breaking people. And as I mentioned again, I want to keep reiterating, there are thousands of Messiah-trusting Jews. And those are not covenant-breaking. They are enjoying God's saving favor and grace. But as a whole, right, as an ethnic unity, and the reason why you see so much conflict, and as a state, they are de- that, that group of people are defined by rejecting the Messiah, Jesus Christ. They don't want to define themselves as Christian. If they embraced Jesus as Messiah and Savior, they would be Christian and Jew. Nothing will ever take away their Jewishness, if that's that's a word. But their identity would be in Christ. It would be new. But many still today are decidedly not Christians, which means that they are in a state just like anybody else who is not, they're in a state of treason and rebellion against their, against their God, against God their King, who sent His Son to save them. And a people who are in rebellion against their King cannot lay legitimate claim to the King's promises to a covenant-keeping people. For example, in our study of Daniel, something that you're going to see is... When Israel was driven from the land of promise under God's judgment by the Babylonians, this is something we're going to read about in Daniel chapter 9 as we go through this book. Daniel prayed in chapter 9, and I'll give a paraphrase of that prayer. It's right around verses 3 through 7. He says, O Lord, we have sinned and done wrong. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. To all Israel... In the lands to which you have driven them, because by the treachery they, that they have committed against you. They have committed treachery against you. So in other words, God is righteous, and he is righteous to deny Israel her divine right to the land when she is a treacherous, rebellious people against God. That's what Daniel is saying. Daniel says that. The prophet. In, in Luke chapter 19, verses. let's go back to the New Testament. So Luke chapter 19 Verses 41 through 44. Jesus was standing, looking out over Jerusalem at this point, okay? There's a 
beautiful but sad scene where Jesus is standing there looking out over Jerusalem and it says that he wept over it and, it, and, it said, and then it says this, it kind of speaks over Jerusalem. He says this, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus is telling them then, you rejected the cornerstone, the Messiah. You re- Jesus, the Messiah, you're rejecting him. He's telling them that then, and they still do now. Many still do now. This, this little speech that Jesus gave was a turning point for the Jewish people. Their religious leaders decidedly rejected Jesus, and most of the people followed their leaders. And when they did, Jesus said, from in Matthew chapter 21, later in the book of Matthew, Matthew records Jesus saying that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Jesus is prophesying how God, God's going to start his church with the Jews, but he's going to extend through the rest of the world and the Gentile is going to be taken away from you. And he explained it like this in Matthew. He says, many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. Let me read that again. Matthew chapter 8, verse 11. Many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom, you, he's talking to, the Jewish people, will be thrown into the outer darkness. And then later in Romans chapter 11, Paul gives us probably one of the most confusing chapters of Scripture in all the Bible. But he says this in chapter 11, verse 25, For now a hardening has come upon Israel. And in that chapter, there is a a metaphor that Paul uses of an olive tree. And the olive tree has some natural branches and some broken branches that have been cut off from the olive tree. And then there's some wild branches that have been like not even olive tree branches that have been grafted into the tree. And so it depicts Israel as distinct from the New Testament church. And so the natural branches in that olive tree are the Jews. The wild branches that are grafted in, or the wild, the wild branches are the Gentiles. And the entire olive tree is the collective people of God. It's a very rough and quick commentary of Romans 11. And so he says that the natural branches, the Jews, are cut off from the tree for their unbelief. If you unbelieve, if you're not believing in Christ, the Messiah. And then wild branches, the Gentiles, are grafted in. And so this has the effect then of making the Jews jealous and then drawing them to faith in Christ as well so that they might be grafted in again and receive their promised inheritance. And that's God's covenant with his people would then be fulfilled at that, at, at that time. Now, that hasn't happened yet. That regrafting in of, of the Jews, of, the, of, of, of Israel. 
And so admittedly, this is, it's really confusing, right? It's, it's, it's a little difficult to understand. But it also partly explains what is happening in our world today. The scripture really is the only way to understand what is happening in our world today. If people try to understand it and don't have this under, this, the mindset of, of covenant people and covenant breaking, covenant, living under covenant promise and, point, and understanding that the Messiah, and, and, and it's in a pagan world, in a world that, does, that rejects Jesus, we can't make sense of it. To them, it's just land and evil, and, 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 and we try to define it in some way that we can't figure out. And so I think that based on the words of Scripture, we should pray for that day when the hardening, as Paul says in Romans 11, would be lifted from Israel. Pray that their eyes would be open, that they would see Jesus as their Messiah, that they would join the church of Jesus Christ, and that they would be part, again, of that one beautiful tree of covenant love of God, that they would be grafted into the salvation of Christ. So, finally, I'll say this. All right, can I bring this to a close? We got to be really careful to not draw false or unbiblical inferences from anything that I've said today. For example, I think it'd be easy to hear what I've said and say, well, you know what? Israel's present day rebellion against God means that other nations have a right to attack them. And God supports that, right? No. No. They don't have that right, and God does not support them attacking them. Israel still has human rights among nations. Even if Israel currently has no rights before God, because they don't follow Christ, they, don't, they, they, they still have rights among the nations, as all nations do. We don't think any nation, regardless of if it's a pagan nation, unbelieving nation, should be treated unjustly. Neither should Israel. In fact, in the Old Testament, if you read through the Old Testament, whenever God's judgment would come upon Israel and, and, God, and Israel would be disciplined by God and other nations would gloat over that, they were also punished by God. Isaiah speaks of this in Isaiah chapter 10. And so as Christians, our plea to both Palestinians and Jews is the exact same plea. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. If you want to try to understand what's going on and why there's such rebellion among both, it's the rebellion, Jesus says, it, it, it comes from rebelling against that command to believe in the Son of God and you'll be saved. Until that day when both Jewish people, Gentile people who, are follow, who become followers of King Jesus, right? That's, that's, that's when those are the people who will inherit the earth, the scripture says, not just that little piece of land. So until that day when we together will inherit the earth, Without lifting a sword or without lifting up a gun, all of the rights of nations should be decided by principles of compassion and public justice and not some claim to a divine right or to a divine status that you think you have, but you really don't. 
And so again, how should we respond as Christians today? How should we respond? This is the best I've got. We pray. We just pray. We pray for peace. We pray for justice. We pray for mercy. We pray as members who have been grafted into that tree. We pray for Israel as we would any other nation who has been terrifyingly attacked by the evil that men and women are doing. And our prayers don't end with Israel. They extend as well to Palestinian people. I mean, Hamas may control Gaza, but they don't represent all Palestinians. Thousands of Palestinians are Christians, very brothers and sisters of Christ, of us. And so no doubt, many Palestinians, even ones who are not Christians, are still vehemently opposed to Hamas. And so we pray for them as well. We pray that all of those who have positions of power will exercise restraint. We pray especially for the sake of the civilians that are caught up in the cycle of violence that we see constantly. I mean, there there are roughly 2 million people, I think, 2 million Palestinian civilians living in the Gaza Strip, unable to escape. Well, that was, I mean, that was earlier this week when I wrote these notes down. I don't know. There's There's not that many now. And so pray that governments will advocate and take actions toward peace and justice. And so what I would like to do is, I I, I began with prayer and I want to end with prayer. And I feel like one of the best ways to pray is to simply pray the prayers that were given in Scripture. And David has given us a wonderful prayer in the book of Psalm, in the 85th Psalm. And so what I want to do is I'm going to read a portion of the text from Psalm 85, and I'm just going to pray in context of those words from Scripture, and then we are going to respond by taking communion and just continuing to pray. If any of you have questions or concerns or want to talk more, I'm glad and open to doing that this week. I will warn you. I'm not going to give you any more answers than I gave today. I mean, I, I don't have any. I don't, the only answers I have come from this. And so let's, let's, let's pray. I'm gonna, I'll, I'll tell you what verse it is as we pray. Let, let's make this our prayer. Verse 8. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. God of peace, God who loves us, God who loves the people of Israel and the people of Palestine, God who loves the poor and the powerful, all the same. We pray that we will listen to you, God of peace. We pray that the God that, that to, to you, Lord, that, that uh, the nations won't, won't turn to folly, as David says here. That we pray for wisdom and for patience and for temperance and for justice. Psalm 85, 9 says, Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. That glory may dwell in our land. God, we're in shock and we're in horror as we consider the violence that has been happening in your land. And we long for glory in your land, which looks like grace. It looks like flourishing. It looks like peace. 
And we long for your glory to be present in this world that you created. So bring salvation to us, Lord, because when you bring salvation, we see your glory. Psalm 85, verses 11 and 12 says, Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. God, you're the author of peace. You're the creator of justice, perfect justice. And so we pray that you would bless the work of the hands of those who work for peace. So we pray for an end, an end to bombings and to blockades and to retaliation. We pray an end to hostage taking and shootings. We pray an end to vengeance and terror and threats. Your word tells us to pray for that. So we're praying for that today, Lord. We pray for that. We ask for that. We beg you for that. Verse 13 in Psalm 85 says, Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Lord, empower each one of us through your spirit that our homes where we live, as well as our state, our country, all the countries of the world, they would become places of peace. May our homes be places of peace to begin with. We can control that. And so by your grace, Lord, we pray that you would help us to see every human being as a child of God. That you would bring healing to those who have experienced violence and all sorts of trauma. That you would give protection to those who are serving in all the militaries that are fighting against terror. That you'd give courage to those who end up being first responders when bombs strike. And Lord, that you would give wisdom to the leaders, those who lead nations that they will strive to work harder for peace than they do for war. Lord, show us your unfailing love. Grant to us the joy of your salvation. Lord, may we be people of peace and love and compassion and mercy and grace. And may we extend that to everyone we come into contact with that it would be an example of what we desire to see in the rest of the world. Father, we pray all of this in the name of Jesus, the Lord, the Messiah, the King.